Welcome to the Life Size City Urbanism Podcast. I'm Michael Koval Anderson. I have always sought out inspiration for my work in urban design in unorthodox places. My background is not one rooted in the academic learning of my profession. I came at urbanism from a background in literature and film. I supplement the solid pile of academic research that I constantly pour over with my own observations in daily life. The experience I gain on the many projects I've worked on around the world, but also from things like working with kids who have taught me more about urbanism than anyone else. But then there is photography, literature, psychology, and philosophy. I've learned so much from the likes of Calvino, Bukowski, Michel de Seto, Cern Kierkegaard, and, of course, Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Falling Down, for example, are two of the greatest films about urbanism ever to come out of Hollywood. Then there's Carl Honoré, Canadian writer and thinker and really the person who launched the entire slow philosophy and movement on a fast-paced planet with his seminal book, In Praise of Slow. Back in 2008, I was inspired by his work to start the slow bicycle movement, and his thinking about slow is ever-present in my life. And we've had long conversations about how slow living interacts with my philosophies about life-sized cities, and it was high time that we filmed it. COVID-19 got in the way, but the other day we whipped together a Zoom conversation. We talk about slowing down cities, what kind of cities we like, the effect of the pandemic on people's perception of their cities. If there is a silver lining in this pandemic, it might be the fact that many of us have been forced to slow down to an agreeable pace. We also talk about his new book, Boulder, making the most of our longer lives, and how aging and ageism interconnect with urban life, and how despite our aging populations, we're not planning our cities for them. For all the talk of democratic design and universal design, we are not seeing any widespread application in our cities. Carl is a constant source of inspiration for me, personally and professionally, and bantering back and forth with him is always enjoyable. If you like, you can watch the video of this conversation on the Life Sized City YouTube channel, youtube.com slash the Life Sized City. Now, let's get bantering. Carl, how you doing, buddy? I'm very well. <laughs> I'm as well as you can be in the middle of a global pandemic. <laughs> but hey, here we are. I miss you, man. I mean, uh, we would have probably seen each other at some point this year, uh, if not for the pandemic. So uh, at least we're, I'm looking at your mug right now, huh? We would, we would have been um, rubbing shoulders, literally, and um, burning the midnight oil, I'm sure, in a couple of cities around the world if this hadn't happened. <laughs> as we do, yes. As we did. As we might, once again, yes. <laughs> We've been talking about doing this for a while, you and me, and, uh, you know, sort of talking about, you know, your work and uh, how that applies to sort of my, uh, my area of interest. And I think that's, uh, I think it's a cool angle. I mean, when you talk about, okay, like with the corona, with the COVID-19 year, like it's been a slow year for you, hasn't it? Really? I mean, have you slowed down a lot? You know, follow all of your philosophies to the letter this year? Well, <laughs> this, this has been a year of slow, definitely. But um, it's funny, when the first, it first hit back in March, so many people were saying to me, oh, you must be so happy, right? This is exactly what you wanted, a global slowdown. Nah, <laughs> I mean, this is just a total nightmare, right? It's an ordeal for everyone in lots of different ways. But right? I try to see the silver lining. I do think that this has been a, or carries on being a kind of reset moment. I think a lot of people have had time just to rethink pace, right? The speed in which they work, eat, 
made love, walked, whatever it is, right? I think, and I think that COVID has forced that upon us. We're all going through a, a global workshop in slow at the moment, right? We, we didn't want it, but we've got it. So I, I kind of think this is a time to try and learn a few lessons, right? And carry them forward, hopefully. It's kind of the, a, perfect, a perfect storm for, uh, for what you've been working for for many years, maybe. Yeah, no, it is, I think. Uh, you know, if you look back over the last, whatever it is now, seven months, God, are we seven months deep? Um, you know, most of us have spent the last seven months probably doing less, rushing less, you know, maybe working less, just, you know, just less. And I think a lot of people have discovered that contrary to what conventional wisdom tells you, which is you've got to cram more and more into less and less time and juggle and do more and more things that actually less is more, you know, and I think people have really rediscovered a lot of the joys of slowing down. So if you look at right across the world, the sorts of activities people have drifted back to in these last few months, it's things like baking sourdough, right? It's playing board games. It's going for walks. Yeah. It's sometimes just sitting around doing nothing, right? You know, just doing things for the sake of it and sometimes doing nothing at all and not feeling guilty about that. So I, I think that's been a real bracing wake-up call for a lot of people who realize that, you know what, it's not so bad reconnecting with your inner tortoise. I mean, I thought about you, but well, we had a lockdown back in uh, in the spring here in Copenhagen. I know London, where you are, just went into lockdown again here in uh, in October. Um, but I, I remember thinking about you uh, wandering around my neighborhood, because that's all we could do here. We could go out, everything was closed, people just wandering aimlessly up and down the streets of their neighborhoods and discovering, well, there's a park. It's 10 minutes from here, and I just never go, you know, and and I'm thinking, okay, Carl would want me to do this. I channeled my inner Carl, and, you know, but just really just walking because there was nothing else to do, right? The kids were at home, so going out with the kids, going for a run maybe even. Uh, but yeah, just that whole uh, just chill. I mean, for me, it's not that hard because I kind of live a freelance life. So it's, it's, I'm, I'm not in a hurry, you know, when I'm at home or whatnot and working uh, here from home. But yeah, it was really, I noticed the effect on it. And and just studying all the other humans on the urban landscape, you know, it was like they had the kind of a dazed look on their face because of the pandemic and the whole topsy-turvy world. But you could just sort of see them looking at the buildings, you know. I didn't know that, didn't notice the detail, you know what I mean? Like, it was just people were just, their eyes were open and they were just absorbing everything at a, at a nice slow pace, right? I think that's true. I think that's something that the, the, the pandemic or the lockdown that went along with it has given us. It's sort of allowed us to, or forced us to take the red pill, right? And yeah. I think it's opened a lot of people's eyes to what has always been around them. And this is one of the things that we sacrifice on the altar of speed is deep, rich experience of whatever it is we're going through, whether it's our neighborhood and the urban landscape, whether it's relationships and the things people are saying to us, whether it's the art that surrounds us, the work we do. You know, fast is all about touching the surface, skimming along, moving as quickly as possible. Slow dives deep, right? It gets down to the core, it gets to the heart of the matter. And that's why, you know, Milan Kundera, the famous novelist, Czech novelist, said once that there's an intimate bond between slowness and memory. And, and I think that's so true that when you're rushing through your life, nothing sticks because everything's a blur, right? And I think a lot of us, certainly pre-pandemic, had that experience of getting to the end of the month or even the year and looking back and thinking, whoa, that was 2019, right? I can't remember what I had for lunch, you know, two days ago. I can't remember how that Netflix series I finished watching last week ended, right? Because nothing sticks, we're moving too fast. And I think what COVID has done is it forced us to slow down and we're forging memories that are gonna last, right? And we're actually noticing the texture, the nuance, the details, as you say, of, of the things around us. And it's as simple as just walking through streets you've rushed through in the past. Suddenly you notice that cupola, you notice the way the light falls on a window, you hear 
neighbors, right? You hear birdsong again. So all of this richness, this cornucopia of detail is, has always been there for us. And I think slowing down through COVID is allowing us to tap into it. It's interesting you mentioned like you can hear your neighbors because I think one of the so the urbanism uh, effects of the of the lockdown here was that, yeah, like everywhere, the streets were empty. There was no car traffic. You could hear your city, man, like in like in a way we we never have the opportunity to do so. But the number of noise complaints in Copenhagen, uh, you know, uh, people calling the police, it's just gone through the roof. Like we have some restrictions on bars here. Uh, they close at 10. So a lot of the young people are going out, you know, into public space and partying, right? And the police are having to oh, scold them. So people are complaining about these maybe loud parties in places where they never normally took place. But generally, people are just complaining uh, more than ever. And I'm just thinking like, because you're home alone all day. You know, you're not gone for that eight, nine, ten hours a day. And all of a sudden you just notice every sound and then they don't, it just becomes an irritation. So your otherwise quiet neighbor is now the noisiest human on the planet in your perception, right? Kind of a funny little uh, angle there that nobody saw coming. I don't think we saw anything coming, really. We're all still trying to figure it out. I have, I'm fine with my neighbors. You know, they're pretty quiet and stuff. But yeah, I can hear them a lot more. But a lot of other people are going, oh, it's just too noisy. Really? Like, <laughs> your, your yardstick, uh, like, eight months ago was different than it is now, dude. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the big questions about urbanism and thinking about how cities are constructed and how we experience them is, is noise, right? When does sound become noise? When does the, you know, ch child playing next door become an irritant and all that? And how does, how does, you know, how, I'd be interested to know, I mean, how does that fit into the idea of a life-size city, right? I mean, if you think back to, I mean, a lot of people would say the high watermark of urban development was, you know, the, the Italian hilltop towns in medieval times, right? Where people did live on top of each other. Now they didn't have Netflix blaring out and there weren't so many electronic noises out there, but they would have heard their neighbors a lot, right? Uh, and I wonder if, I don't know, do you have any thoughts on how that, comparing across epochs and, and, and how sound and noise fit together in our city's shared spaces? Every city was designed slow, right? Not just even the hilltop towns, the large Italian sort of fortress towns like uh, Siena and stuff like that. You know, even Rome, you know, neighborhood by neighborhood, it was all very, of course, we didn't have, you know, cars flying through. So it was all a very human pace. But yeah, trying to push that back to, to that place is really what the life-size city is all about. You know, uh, people trying to just slow their neighborhood down and, you know, take away some car parking, put in uh, some picnic tables and or, you know, making play streets for kids or whatever. That's all sort of, you know, a part of uh, a part of your, you know, your slow philosophy, I think. I think one thing for me is with the COVID-19 pandemic is that we all of a sudden have a shared vision all over the planet. People that have nothing to do with each other all looked out their windows for a period of time and went, wait, it's so nice without all those cars, right? And I think that's a strength for us. You know, you're talking about memories. And yeah, we're all going to remember what it was like, the thing that they told us was never possible, right? Car-free streets. That's going to be a force for for good in, in, in citizen activism, which is what the Life Size City Man really focuses on. People are gonna go, hey, wait, you know, it was really cool and now all the cars are back and that kind of sucks. And maybe we should write an email to the city or go to some uh, citizen meetings or whatever, engage themselves more. I don't know, I don't have any, any data yet about an increase in the number of citizens showing up at, at public hearings, uh, but we all have that one very, very vivid memory of quiet streets and non-polluted cities because of the traffic disappearing, right? That's one of the things I'm putting my money on as, as a positive is that we're all gonna realize, hey, our city was really nice 
even though everything sucked, right? And why can't we do that every day? You know, excuse me, who do I ask? Who do I talk to about that, right? Not just ask, but who do I lean on, right? I mean, this is the thing is, we, you know, get people actually, you know, whether it's writing to their MPs or their, you know, members of parliament or whatever. And because I, I mean, at the moment, the political class are very exposed to us. I mean, they're, they're having to make big decisions that affect our lives every day. They're coming out with press conferences. So this is a very opportune moment, I think, for us as citizens to stand up and say, you know what, we went through some stuff that was pretty awful, but those, some of it was, was good. And why can't we find ways now to embed those good bits and keep them? Uh, and I, I do think I'm, I'm a natural born optimist and I'm definitely seeing so many examples around the world of changes that are occurring in the fabric and the running of cities that feel like they're not here today, gone tomorrow. They feel like they're here to stay, right? I mean, so, I, mean I live in London, right? So we've seen huge changes in roads everywhere being set aside for cyclists, you know, many more cycling lanes. Just literally 20 meters from my front door, there is a shopping street, which always has traffic on it. Um, you know, it's a lovely street with lots of little mom and pop shops and so on, but it's always got traffic. During the pandemic, at the beginning of the summer, they decided to close the street completely to traffic for the all weekend, all the way through the summer. And it was such a hit, right? that they've decided to extend it. They've extended now to the end of October and you know who knows what will happen at the end of October. Uh, but it just shows that when people try something, they savor it, they love it, it can stick. And it's an extraordinary transformation what happens on my street down there. You go down, it's like a, it's like a broigle, right? It's just full of people of all ages, gossiping, flirting, drinking, eating, uh, you know, rollerblading. It's just this kind of carnival of humanity. And it's been made possible by a very simple tweak, which is to close a road off, right? You wouldn't even need or perhaps even want that road to be closed off seven days a week just because of the nature of flow and footfall and traffic and who's around. But it makes perfect sense in the, in the, um, in the weekends to do it. It's going to be tougher in the winter. Winter, you know, the weather not so sort of amenable. But I can see it carrying on and certainly will come back next summer. So, you know, this is the kinds of things that we dig in our heels and we really, really lean in and lean on, right? Our, our, our elected representatives, they can, they can be with us forever, right? Absolutely, I mean, I think also, you know, politicians are scrambling all over the world, but the citizens are also experiencing more time on their hands following the pandemic. So they're actually paying attention to these politicians more because they're at home or, you know, they got more time or they're really engaged in the pandemic. So yeah, the politicians, I wouldn't want, I really wouldn't want to be a politician, uh, you know, most politicians right now, man, that's a lot. A lot of pressure that they'll be under. I'm not sorry for them, believe me. I'm just, uh, I'm just saying it intense. But I mean, your street you mentioned, man, isn't that kind of funny, right? Like that, that was every street in every city for thousands and thousands of years, every single day. And now we've just forgotten that in because of the car. I just love it that people are going, wow, right? And but they're doing a wow at something that was normal for every human that came before us in cities until like the 1950s, right? But uh, it's 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 a cool little epiphany they're experiencing. Well, it shows you that that's a basic human need, right? Is to move through the space where you live without fear of being run over, without fear of your children being run over, and just mixing together in in close proximity. Obviously, with social distancing now, that's another variable in the equation. But generally speaking, that's a basic human need. So even if we've gone through decades of not having that. We have a folk memory and a biological drive to have that. So you give it to us and we're going we're gonna to spot it right away that it makes sense for us. We're going to want to keep it. It's the same with, you know, um, social contact uh, separate from streets, right? You know, people spending so much time on social media and electronic communications. When you actually give people a chance to be in a room together or switch off their phones, they love it, right? They light up, you know. They maybe have some withdrawal symptoms at first because they can't check Instagram instantly. But pretty quickly, they fall back into that deep 
eternal human rhythm of being with other human beings, listening, touching, uh, being in uncomfortable silence sometimes, all that stuff, it's all there, right? If we could just let ourselves experience it and then enjoy it and then demand more of it. I mean, I, I, I think there's a virtual circle that can very easily be established here. You know, one, one final thought, just on the idea of uh, the change. As you were talking, I, I suddenly remembered that yes, um, this last weekend I was walking down this, my closed street and it was funny, I found myself walking on the sidewalk, right, the pavement, when I didn't need to. You know, there were people on the road and I was finding myself just naturally falling into that old groove of walking on the sidewalk. And I actually had to stop and think, you know what? I can walk on the road. It's okay. And in fact, I should, right? Because it's an important symbolic gesture to say I'm reclaiming that sacred space that belongs to me as someone who lives here, right? And I then got off the pavement and I felt liberated and and, and, you know, cutting edge and like I was, you know, some kind of rebel, right? Uh, and just enjoy walking down the middle of the street. But it's interesting how quickly, it's, a, it's a maybe a cautionary tale, how easily we can fall back into those old patterns, just accepting the status quo ante and, and following the old tracks, which means letting most of the space be for cars. Let's not do that, right? Let's fight that That's instinct. what we were taught, right? Yeah. No, that's funny, Mike. The street that I hang out on the most in Copenhagen where my, my, my local wine bar is, funny that, um, <laughs> it's a... Uh, it's a weird street in Copenhagen, like very, very narrow sidewalk. There are cars in both directions, but it's a super slow street. They call it the French street. It's like a nickname. And I sit on the bench, you know, outside this place. I've been doing it for years. And it's like watching tennis, just people watching, right? But the sidewalks are super narrow. So once in a while, you'll get like a demonstrative uh, parent with a pram. And if a chair has bumped a bit too far out, it's like, <clears throat> and then, or an elderly person. But then like you just look past them and people are walking out on the street. Like the, it's all just, uh, there's no, the, the lines are blurred. But then some people are still demonstrative about this is my pedestrian space and therefore everybody else get out of the way. But you, know, you just want to say like, chill, man. Use the street like everybody else is doing, right? It's, it's okay once in a while to do so. Well, there's always going to be sticks in the mud, aren't there, right? But I, I think that by and large, people, people get it, right? It's just because it's what, it's what we're made for, right? So you give it to us. We're going to latch onto it and, and, and want more of it. I mean, you talk about speed of, of roads. That's something you've seen a lot in London here in the last few years. They brought down the speed limit in, across whole boroughs of the city from 30 miles an hour to 20 miles an hour. They lopped off quite a bit of speed and it, it's, it does make a palpable difference in those neighborhoods, I notice. And I notice myself because I'm somebody who rollerblades in the road. I cycle a lot and I also have a car, which I use sometimes. So I kind of see it from the three different angles. And I feel like it's made a a seismic shift in the way those areas feel and the way that people, the different players on the board game of city life interact, right? So if, you've got, if you're driving through at 20, people are less afraid, right? They're more likely to demand their space to cross the road. They're more, you'll see more cyclists. Cyclists will push further forward towards the traffic light. You just, you'll see children, you'll see more children out. It's interesting. I, I mean, I've never done any quantitative studies, but I just feel like you see more kids, maybe kids, without parents hovering over them, right? So a, a, a tweak like that, right? That's not getting rid of traffic, but it's saying, you know what, we're just gonna roll the traffic juggernaut back a little bit. Instead of driving at 30, you're gonna drive at 20. And that's gonna make a big difference for everybody, right? It also makes driving less stressful, let's be honest, because you don't get anywhere less fast because that's the nature of traffic in a city. And you're, it's just less stressful driving more slowly, right? That's just one of the things you have less, there are fewer inputs, less distractions, less fear. You just kind of cruise along. You listen to a podcast. You put, you roll down your window. You, you know, it's just more relaxed. It's more slow, and everybody benefits. There's not a lot of like great storytelling coming out of the UK regarding urbanism, really, ever. You know, in the in the past decade or so. But the one that 
that I do know is, yeah, man, the, the 20s plenty movement. Uh, yeah. That's the NGO that's behind that. I mean, and slowing London down like that, man, that is something that I wish we even had in Copenhagen, you know. Um, so that, that's pretty cool, man. That's really cool to hear how what it's like for you to, to, to use the, the slower streets, right? That's totally, totally the way forward. And I think as well, the, I mean, you will have this in Copenhagen, obviously, because everybody's got a bike there, right? But, but the introduction of, of uh, public bike networks, right? Or, or rent bikes that you can ride from the city, you know? Um, yeah. that, that also, that's, we've had that for a few years, but that makes a big difference too, because it just changes the dynamic in the street. There are more bikes per car. A lot of those bikes are being ridden, not now because of COVID, but usually by tourists who aren't used to being on the other side of the road, a little bit unsure and don't wear a helmet. Just forces everybody to be more attentive, more aware, more slow, right? More present, whether you're right. behind the wheel of a car or whether you're one of those wobbly tourists from Italy, right outside Trafalgar Square. And it just, again, it just shifts that dynamic, shifts the energy to a more gentle, even, I want to say soothing, I might be overstating it, but just a, a more slow pace, right? That I think works for everybody. No, I was, I was wondering um, something I never asked you, like, you know, what, what cities do you like? Like personally, right? For other reasons than slow, but the question is also, you know, where do you feel like you are existing in that city at a pace and, uh, you know, in, a, in, a, in an atmosphere that you enjoy, you personally? What cities, uh, cities do you dig? I'm a big, I'm a big fan of Amsterdam, actually. I, I like the, 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 the scale of it. I like the kind of higgledy-piggledy architecture. I like the fact that it's got water because I think any city that's got water, that brings another kind of natural um, vibe to it, which is, is, is healthy and lifts the spirits. And then, of course, the, the Dutch are incredibly good at bicycles. It's very walkable. I, I, I Sometimes when I think of other cities that I would live in, I definitely think Amsterdam is right at the top of my list as, as a place where it's just a joy to move through the space, isn't it, right? Yeah. Are you a fan of Amsterdam too? I'm guessing you must be, yeah? I, I, I really like Amsterdam, absolutely. Um, I, I, I think it's cute. <laughs> I really think it's a cute city. Uh, and I enjoy going there and hanging out there and I have friends there, but yeah. I, I just, I'm just glad to get home, you know, or, you know, to go to Barcelona or Paris. I don't know. It's just something like, it's just, Barcelona it's like a, another one. it's a cutesy place and it's fun to be there, but I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't think I'd ever lived there, but. No, neither would I. The, culturally, it's not my, I'm much more interested in Mediterranean. You know, I love Barcelona. That's another city I feel great affinity with. And I love, I love Paris. I mean, I think Paris is a bit uniform, stayed safe French is that a fair thing to say I don't know you know it's got there are things about Paris that I, I that kind of rub, rub me slightly the wrong way but I do love just walking in Paris right with no map just going to an area and just wandering around I mean it's a wonderful city for for doing that and any city that invites you to put away your GPS to leave your map at home and just get lost on foot or by bike man I'm going to sign up to that city and I think Paris falls into that category I mean in Paris like Paris, right? Yeah, I, I used to live there. Like, I got some issues with it. But I mean, then there's the neighborhoods, you know, you meet somebody, oh, you lived in Paris, you know, where do you hang out? And then you rattle off your arrondissement. And like me, it's always like, ah, one, three and 10. That's usually where I uh, hang out, you know, uh, and other people, oh, I'm more to the fifth. It's like it is a neighborhood city, right? Like, uh, you don't have to experience the whole Paris good and bad. You literally have that one cafe that you go to every time and that bistro is good. And I got all my places. So yeah, I like I like Paris for that. The neighbor Barcelona too, you know. I never go to the touristy areas, you know. I I, I go into Poblenau or Gracia, which are very you know local Catalan neighborhoods, and that's where you, you're living the local life without all the wobbly Italians, <laughs> either on foot or bike. I think the idea of you put your finger on a really key word, I think there, which is neighborhoods. I think all great cities 
our, our networks and neighborhoods. And, and London is a bit like that as well. It's not like a North America, like the kind of city that you and I are from, right? Calgary, Edmonton, downtown and the kind of suburbs. And these are little villages in a way that grew together over time and became a city in London. So, you know, although I'm not that far from the throbbing core of London, I, I have a neighborhood where I can get anything on foot, right? You know, anything I want, incredible restaurants, places to eat out, food, amazing parks. My kids went to school at, you know, two, three blocks away on foot. You know, all of that is there. And I think that's, that is, to, to me, when I think of your phrase, life-size city, that I think that, and I think one of a slow city as well, in the kind of slow cities movement, that's got to be pretty high on the, 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 the wish list, right, is to have that neighborhood set up. Or, or people talk about the 20-minute neighborhood, right, where anything, you can get everything you, can, you need, a 10-minute walk from home, right? So 10 minutes there, 10 minutes back. And that, I mean, Paris has got that, all those different at-home, these small you're talking about, London's got it. Edmonton doesn't, right? Neither do many North American cities. They're all about the car and, you know, they're like that George Pompidou infamous quote, right, from French president, what did he say? We, the time has come to make uh, the city fit the car, not the other way around. You know? Oh, yeah. What a horrific quote. idea. I forgot about that quote because the former mayor of Paris, who was mayor for 12 years, who started the current urban revolution, and the lady who's now in charge of Paris is continuing his work. His quote is the one that I quote the most. He says, the fact is that cars no longer have a place in the big cities of our time. So he was taking that Pompidou quote and just, you know, <laughs> smashing it into smashing, the ground. Yeah. So for a good 30 years, it was the supremacy, utter supremacy of the car. And look where it got us. Oh, that's why I have a job, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right, exactly. <laughs> You've been like the slow dude, right? Like for years. And I've been like the bike dude for years. And now I'm doing completely different things, but I'm still like in people's minds on the, on the, on the internet, you know, who maybe don't know that I've, I'm doing different stuff now in urbanism. But yeah, what's that label like? Because you got a new book now. You sort of moved your focus a bit different. But I mean, is it, which is called Boulder. I want to talk about that. Is it kind of, a, it's a hard kind of like personal brand in a way. You're well known for this thing. Now you're doing something different. And, but there's still the crossover. You probably still do keynotes uh, in a normal year anyway uh, about slow stuff where maybe you want to talk about your new book more. I mean, what's that like having that balance between subject matter? It's a bit like... Uh you know, being a veteran rock star, right? And you go do a gig and all the fans want to hear your original hits from way back when and you want to, you want to play your new <laughs> tunes, right? And there's a, <laughs> there's, a, there's a balance to be struck there. Uh, I love the old tunes, right? And, and, and in fact, I think the whole slow revolution still has a long way to go and it never gets old for me. It never gets boring for me because it's always evolving and there's new challenges and new ways of thinking about it. So that's still very much a part of what I do, but I've kind of realized over the years, and I think you're hinting at it there, that people struggle to hold more than one idea about you. They like to think that, you know, Michael is this thing, or Carl is that thing, or she's that, you know. And as soon as you come along with something new or different or something that spins off in a tangential direction, that's sort of, you know, what are you, what are you on about? Or there must be some kind of connection between what you're doing before and what is the link? So yeah, I kind of bump up against um, quite a lot of that because <laughs> I'm just, yeah, I mean, I, you, I'm, slow and Carl, I'm just going to take that to the grave, right? For better or worse, mostly for better, right? I'm not complaining, but, um, yeah, yeah I, I, but I'm somebody, I'm a journalist by background and I'm very curious and I really never want to be caught in a gilded cage. I, I want to ask questions. So yeah. So as you say, my new book is about, um, attitudes to aging, right? So I guess with my first three books and all the work I've done with slow, I was taking on the cult of speed. What I'm doing now with the new work is taking on the cult of youth, right? <laughs> taking down the idea that younger is always better, 
that it's all downhill from, I don't know, 35, 40, wherever we're drawing a line, right? The, you know, the idea there's no wrong side of 40 because, you know, there, there's just another side of 40, right? Um, there's this side and the other side. And, and there's so many things that actually improve as we get older. And the world is shifting in ways that mean that it's never been a better time to age in human history. So there's so, so many reasons to, to feel good about growing older and not to think that the aging population, right, which we're always being told is this horrendous catastrophe for the world. It's not that, right? There's so many other ways of seeing it that are much more hopeful. And if we rejig and reboot our way of thinking about aging, we can actually make use of the, the different kinds of creativity, the different kinds of social skills, the different uh, big picture thinking that, that older brains bring to the party. If we, if we get away from the, the cult of youth idea that was famously encapsulated by Mark Zuckerberg, who stood on a stage a few years ago and said, young people are just smarter. Think, what dude i mean and no one really? said anything right and the fact that no one said anything shows just how deep that ageist cult of youth thing runs that's all very interesting but i want to go back to the slow movement no i'm just kidding i'm just kidding um, <laughs> <laughs> um, in urbanism i have a friend of mine one of the people i admire the most and you know we had this huge discussion and her her rant at the moment is talk about democratic design you know where you design a city for everybody in it. And she's saying, we just don't do that really anywhere. Kids, we don't care about them. And the elderly, we don't care about them. We only care about the people in the middle who have money, who are working at a job and, you know, and then the elderly, oh, who cares? So she's like really focused now, um, yeah, on the elderly. And ever since I've had this conversation with her, also my old dad, before he died, when he came to visit in Copenhagen, you know, he would like stumble on the sidewalk and he would like look down because he, you know, he lived in Canada where the sidewalks are these, you know, you know, formed, solid, formed, uh, you know, concrete. Um, and so here there was cobblestones to trip over and stuff. So I started noticing like, yeah, wow. And ever since I'm talking to her, man, I'm just like studying all the old people in my neighborhood. And there's a lot of them in this neighborhood, which is cool. Um, but yeah, it's just like, we're not designing for these people at all. We just don't give a shit about them. And we're just, uh, we're just designing for the people, you know, in the middle there with the money. And so I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, that's why, you know, your book is, uh, is, is relevant also in urbanism, man. I think so, yeah. I mean, this is one of the big challenges I think we face now is rethinking design, right? Moving to what people call universal design. So you design, and, and this actually, again, works for everybody, hence the term universal, right? If you design something that is comfortable and works smoothly for an older demographic, Younger people are going to love it too, right? And you see that with, you know, the, I think it was the Ford Focus, I think, was the, the car that they designed for an older, older um, generation. You know, they, you know, slightly bigger um, uh, stuff on the, the dashboard and easier to get in and out of. And they just made it for older people. And younger people loved it, right? It became a bestseller across all generations. And I think there's a very useful moral and lesson in there, right? That if you design stuff that's good, right? And it works for people who maybe have you know, more needs physically or aren't as strong or whatever, the people who are okay physically for now are going to love it too. And, and that's something that I, I sort of feel is creeping into the conversation around design and urbanism and architecture, but it's, man, I, I don't know what your feeling is, but I feel like we're still pretty early on. We're in the, we're only coming out of base camp, right? <laughs> Everest. We've still got a lot of mountain to climb, but I do think the conversation is shifting in that direction. Is, is that something you feel from where you're sitting? Yeah. I mean, all globally, you know, aging population. So yeah, we're, we're forced to, uh, to consider it. Um, I don't see it happening very often. The ultimate place to be old for me would be like Japan, 
Tokyo, geez, they design everything for the elderly because they have uh, such an aging population and they're just good at, at universal slash democratic design, right? I don't speak Japanese, so that's kind of a problem. But um, yeah, they are amazing at providing facilities uh, and activating uh, the elderly and, and making them still feel a part of society where here we, especially in the Nordics, we just shove them all in the care homes because we've paid for that and they've paid for that. So there you go. See you later, right? Out of sight, out of mind. We really need to get the game face on for this. And, you know, I, don't, I mean, we're around the same age. I mean, you, you, I, I started thinking about, you know, mortality more than ever before. And not just through my work in urbanism and my, this focus on, on, you know, an aging population in urbanism. But, yeah, you, you start realizing, you know, oh, those stairs are a bit tricky. You know, if I was 10 years older and not as fit as I hopefully will be in 10 years. You know what I mean? Like, you, you, you start thinking a lot about it, right, as you move around a city. You're very, very active. I'm active as well. Is that why you wrote the book? Because you're getting old? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're all aging, however old we are, whether you're 25, 35, 55, or 105, you're, we're all aging. I, yeah, I guess I wrote it because, uh, I mean, my, the spark for me was I was at a hockey tournament, um, you know, playing really well, scoring an amazing goal, and then I discovered I was the oldest player at the tournament. And for some reason, it just rocked me to the foundation. I mean, I knew I was one of the oldest, right? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not deluded. But somehow to be the oldest, just, I don't know, all these questions, I began thinking, you know, are people laughing at me or should I be here? Should I take up a more age-appropriate pastime like bingo or something, right? And I just, for some, <laughs> the, just the very fact that I felt that even though I was enjoying it, I was playing well, that somehow I didn't belong there because of my chronological age, that just, I thought, there's something there. I need to understand why I feel that. Am I right to feel that? Is there another way to feel about my age? So that's kind of where it all unspooled from. And I tell you what, I've got a very... Bef clear before and after, right? I definitely was worried about and ashamed about, I think, my age before, or I used to think about it or try not to think about it. Now it doesn't, doesn't matter. What matters now is not my birth date. What matters is the choices I make and the things I'm able to do, you know, whether I can, you know, play hockey or the food I cook for the people I love or the places I travel, the books I read, the politics. I, that's what matters, right? And I think that's what's really changing now worldwide. That's a tectonic shift that's coming is that chronological age is lo losing its power to define and limit us and what matters more and more is who you are as a person right what you what you bring to the party and I think that's a hugely liberating and human way of thinking about aging whatever age you are right so so actually it's funny my book I'm I'm what am I now gosh uh, 52 there I couldn't even remember my chronological age um, but I'm finding that people are reading Boulder who are late 20s, you know, already people around 30 are starting to worry about their age and stuff. And I'm hearing tons of readers in their 40s and stuff. And, and all the way up, my oldest reader so far, far that I've heard from has been 96. So it kind of, in a sense, proves the point that we're all victims of ageism. We're all victims in one form or another of the cult of youth. And we'll all benefit if we take down the ageist industrial complex. So that's kind of my new, my new crusade to go alongside the slow crusade. <laughs> the ageist industrial complex, man. That's a, that, that's, that's, a, that's a great phrase. It sounds scary. Anything with industrialist complex at the end of it sounds scary, but yeah. <laughs> there are a few of them out there. No, but it's funny <laughs> yeah. how you felt like, well, I don't know, insecure when you're playing hockey and being the best guy on the, on the ice. Like, I'm thinking, I would own that. Like, I'll go, you crazy kids today. You don't know hockey. I can tell you about hockey. You know, like, I mean, yeah, when I play, I do now, <laughs> I play paddle tennis, you know, and uh, I just started playing like three weeks ago. But like, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really good. And like, they're going, you've never played before. No, I played tennis before. But what the fuck? This is easy. You know, you know, and you see all the kids watching you. If you're having a good game with my with my friends, you like you see the young people walking in to play on the next court and they just stop when they stop and look. I'm going, that's right. That's right, kids. Uh huh. 
learn from the Jedi master, you know? <laughs> so I just thought, I'm hopping here, but man, talking about aging and, and you know, when we started maybe thinking about mortality more and, and aging, I mean, I read a, a bunch of books by the French writer, Michel Wilbeck, Atomized, Platform. I read them all around the age of 40, which was the greatest literary mistake I've ever made in my life because he's writing the books because he was around the age of 40. It was just so depressing. I literally had physical anxiety from reading these books. I'm reading them all again. It's taken me 10 years, right? 12 years even. Uh, and I went, you know what? I really like this guy's writing. So I'm literally reading them at the moment. And I'm going, I'm fine with this. Like it's, it's cause he's talking about like, you know, at 40 and all the science about how your body st starts to decompose, you know, and all the, just this depressing tale of aging. And now I'm 52 and feeling good and uh, you know, I'm going, yeah, no, I'm fine. But so I can enjoy the books now where I could not. I literally was physically disgusted by the books, well, the content, right? Anyway, that's kind of funny. So now it's kind of cool. I remember some dude years ago, an older guy when I was younger, he was going, oh man, you gotta just wait till you're 50. You'll play the best tennis of your life. And I'm going like, really, you old man, 50? Jesus, I, and now I get it, right? You know, you're playing your great hockey. Um, I'm playing really good tennis at the moment and uh, you know, I can ride a bike as far as I want without falling off or being tired, you know, so yeah, it's kind of cool. I kind of get what he meant, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, that's the true. I mean, this is one of the really sad things is that we are constantly fed the same narrative, you know, and you hear it all the time, all the way from your teens up to your 20s and 30s, you know, you're gonna hit 40 and it's game over, right? You know, uh, and it's just not, right? It's just not in so many different ways. Uh, and and I think it's funny you say Welbeck because of course he, he he really digs down into the the downsides and and kind of makes a whole fetish of them. Um, I can I haven't actually read any of his books. I've read a lot of reviews of them and essays and stuff. And then they're, I, I will now that I hear you reading, perhaps I'll pick one up. But I can imagine that reading one of those books as a if, as a forty year old man, you might it might actually give you erectile dysfunction or something. It's so, so depressing about what it could, oh you know, yeah you know just giving me so much yes anxiety that, about like, what a, a body can do after the first flush of youth, when in fact, you know, bodies can go on just rocking it in so many different ways, right? And, and happiness as well. That's the other thing that I think is, uh, I mean, there are many things, but that people don't realize is that human beings follow a U-shaped happiness curve, right? You know, they start high in childhood, bottom out in middle age, there you go, 40, 45, and then bounce back up again so that the highest rates of happiness, life satisfaction are reported by the over 55s, yeah? So there's so many reasons to look forward to growing older rather than to dread it, to feel fear, shame, guilt, right? Or disgust, all those things that I think we're just being pushed in towards feeling are wrong because there's a whole other story to tell about aging that's much more nuanced, richer, and, and actually more optimistic, yeah? But it must suck to be young and just know that you're gonna get your ass kicked in tennis or, uh, or hockey by these two schmucks, I right? Love, I love that. I love kicking, kicking young ass <laughs> in any sport. <laughs> it's one of, the great, yeah. one of the great joys of being in your 50s. <laughs> I know, right? But it's kind of funny how Boulder, your new book, sort of, you know, from the slow moving into Boulder, like, because old people are slow, right? So it's kind of a continuation of the whole philosophy. Yeah. You know, I mean, stay, keeping slow and stuff, right? Yeah, in some ways, I guess, if you think of a great Venn diagram of the work I do, I suppose there's, there's a little overlap there where physically, in some ways, you do slow down and you, we, we, as we go older, we tend to, you know, certain forms of memory recall and mathematical calculations get slower, but, but a, lot of, a lot of things don't, you know, a lot of, you know, pattern recognition, which leads to problem solving, seeing the big picture, all that stuff gets faster as you get older. You get, and I think you probably recognize that yourself and anyone, you know, past 45 is going to recognize that you've just got this enormous onboard database of experience that you can 
bring to the game, right? And that allows you to cut through the crap to see the core of the problem to get there more quickly. So in a, in a weird kind of way, in some ways you speed up as you, you get older, you get quicker at things, the, the things you're good at and that you've invested in over the years. But um, coming back to your question, yeah, there's a clearly kind of slow thing. So in a sense, you know, one reason I think that we denigrate aging is that we see first the physical slowing, right? And, and that's caught up with the general cult of speed thing. We hate the idea of slowing. It's seen as lazy, boring, unproductive, stupid, right? All these bad things. So you think, okay, a whole group of people as they get older, as we get older, we're going to slow down a bit. That feels like a bad thing. So that you add that extra layer onto the other aversion we feel to the very idea of growing older and then also mortality and the fact that we're going to die eventually. And, you know, you can see how that how people could be sitting at 32 and thinking, Jesus Christ, you know, I've only got eight years left, right? And then it's all over. Um, you know, it's, it's not, right? That's the thing to take away from what we're talking about here. It's not over. It's just beginning, yeah. There's a great quote from Carl Jung, right? The um, famous psychotherapist who said, um, life really does begin at 40. Everything up until then is just research. And I think there's a kind of truth in that, right? That you're, you're working out who you are, how you fit into the world, what lights you up, what you're really good at, and you streamline as you get older. You let stuff go. You just, the stuff that doesn't move you, doesn't put fire in your belly, gone, just gone. Whereas that when you're younger, you feel you've got to do everything. You're trying to impress people. People feel, you just feel less worried about what other people think of you as you grow older. Um, you feel more confident in yourself, more at ease in your own skin. And that just opens up the world's you know, wider, right? Because you go in knowing what you want, knowing what you bring to the party, and you can just go for it, right? So if you go in with, without that cult of youth filter that holds you back, you push it to one side, you know, as Jung said, man, life can just be starting at 40. It's just an observation, right? Like over the past 10 years or so in my work, well, my social life through my work, like 90, 95% of my social life, you know, I'm surrounded by people in their 20s, whether it was my former employees when I had, when I had my company or whatever. I just end up in this crowd, which is kind of weird because, you know, you never have planned for that. You've always assumed that, you know, you will hang out with your, uh, you know, your contemporaries. But I get, I get the whole cult of youth thing, the way society looks at it. But for me, it really has been a fountain of youth, I think, over the past decade. I don't have to talk about mortgages with anybody. <laughs> I hang out with my best friends at a dinner party, and at some point, they're talking about interest rates. And, uh, you know, uh, you're going to switch up the mortgage on the summer. And I'm going, oh, my God. Property prices, that's the kind of... The bane of all dinner parties, yeah. Like, I'm a guy who doesn't own anything. I wrote an article about it, like, simply don't own anything. I've never wanted to. So that those conversations are boring. But hanging out with people in their 20s, like, they, they're, they're, man, they're optimistic. Oh, my whole life is ahead of me, and, you know, there's nothing... There's nothing wrong, and you know it's, that is really like a like a youthful pill for me to take constantly, right? So so much so that hanging out with older people is just like, oh, sometimes boring. But I, I get the whole point with how we focus on youth as like you know the, the 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 prime alpha age group of our society, right? Which of course is stupid, but it's kind of cool to be that older dude. And I mean, I mean, with people who who know me, right? Like uh, in my work. So, you know, let's let the old guy talk. Tell us some stories from back in the day, you know? And, and what was then, it like it, in the old days? Yeah. <laughs> you kids today, you know? <laughs> I, I, I think that the, 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 the real fountain of youth, I, mean, I kind of don't think of it as a fountain of youth. That's the phrase I tend to, to avoid. I think it's just the elixir of life, let's call it that, right? It, it just keeps you on your toes, keeps you sharp, keeps you fresh, whatever age you are, is mixing with different generations, right? And that's something we've lost over the last century or so, we live in age silos. You clearly don't, but many, I would say most people do, get stuck into 
chronological ruts where everybody in their social work circle is more or less the same age. And you just, it just narrows, right? It also locks you into kind of ageist stereotypes because the only people you know are about the same age. And, and one of the big things that I'm talking about in, in my book, Boulder, and a lot of the work I'm doing now is, is trying to, the importance of smashing these age silos, tearing down the walls and just mixing up the generations again. So that could be, you know, someone like you, you know, in your work, spending a lot of time with people in their 20s and 30s. But I, I think, it, you know, there's a lot to be gained having, you know, and this is something that I've gained through my own shifting thoughts about aging through writing the book and so on, is having friends and people like, you know, are in my network now who are much older, who I didn't, I don't know, I, I'm not sure if I consciously avoided that before, but it just wasn't there. And now I make, I'm definitely more open to it. And it's, and there's just different, it's just different perspectives. It's a different, people are different stages. You know, it's, it's like this whole thing in the workplace now about diversity. Yeah, diverse teams are more collaborative, they're more productive, they're more creative. People are happier. You know, it's just, but the problem is in the workplace, we focus diversity on uh, ethnicity, sexual orientation, uh, skin color, all that stuff. And age hasn't, is only now being added to the picture, but it's just as important. And I think that's something to remember as well, that throughout human history, people of different ages mixed, whether it was in the market, the family home, the farm, wherever you went, right? You just, and, and to get, again, it's like we were talking at the very beginning of our conversation about how we're kind of getting back now to, you know, streets you can walk in, cities that are quiet, hearing your neighbors, all that stuff that's just always been there and that we kind of respond to naturally. People, people light up when they're mixed with different generations. And it's just so good for everybody. It boosts everybody's happiness, well-being, productivity, everything. So there's, that's something to bear in mind as well, I think, for, not, not I mean just for you, but just for everybody, is to just to be open to hurling yourself into a kind of rich age pool, right? So I'm gonna see your Carl Jung quote, and I'm gonna raise it with Jerry Seinfeld. Um, <laughs> no, it, it was just, I just thought of this actually, like one of his new Netflix specials, Jerry uh, Seinfeld, He's talking about, you know, being older. I don't think he's in like 62 or something. I can't remember uh, in his 60s. But he was saying, you know, the greatest thing about being older is you just get to say no. Hey, do you want to go up to that restaurant up on 85th? And, you know, if you're younger, you're going, oh, I don't know. I'm kind of busy. I kind of have to, you know, you make excuses. or you get to... And he says, you get older, you're just going, no. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Yeah. And you just walk away. Like, <laughs> and I found myself doing this more. And then I saw that Netflix series. I'm going, oh, my God, it is a thing. It's awesome. You just get to say no. And they're going, okay, older guy going, no. So no, it's don't such a beautiful word. That. I mean, I, I, my first book is called In Praise of Slow. But I, it's In Praise of Slow, but I often think it could just be easily called In Praise of No. Yeah, the, the, the power of no to, yeah. you know, again, it's that idea of winnowing down, focusing on what's important. And um, the, uh, well, you've given me a Seinfeld. I see your Seinfeld. I'll raise you an Ann Landers, right? Ann Landers, the old agony aunt. Yeah, now, now we're really down to brass tacks, yeah. <laughs> and she, her, what, her quote, she wrote once that um, at 20, we worry about what other people think of us. At 40, we stop worrying about what other people think of us. And at 60, we realize they were never thinking about us at all. <laughs> and I, think <laughs> I think what that gets at is that, um, what is it, maybe oh, the God, lightness or freedom that comes on in later life, just to, just to say no and not have to hedge it with explanations. Just say, you know what? Nah, that's not for me. No. And, and, and that's enough. And I think that, again, that's something as... I get, you know, toward, you know, I'm past about what, 52, heading 60 is what, eight years away. I can already feel that and I'm looking forward to getting to 60 and thinking, yeah, you know, I can actually be even less worried about what other people are. I don't worry, especially now, particularly to be honest, but maybe I'll be even worried even less, you know, 10 years from now. So <laughs> I have a friend, a colleague who lives in Canada, and then we went to film the life-size city in Toronto. This is like 
two years ago, three years ago. You know, we have 10 guests in each episode, and he's a very prominent uh, voice on the internet with regard to urbanism and, and architecture. Like, I don't choose the guests. We have a whole research team who does that, but he kind of like tweeted out or something, and he says, yeah, so, you know, Michael's coming to Toronto with this series, and they never called me. Oh, and then he had a whole article about like trying to stay relevant. You know, I guess if you've been a prominent voice or are a prominent voice and then somebody doesn't call you about that topic or whatever. So that's also another part of aging. You know, uh, when you, you said at 60, they don't think of you at all. That kind of made me think of, uh, of that. You know, no, but you know what I mean? Like staying relevant. You're publishing books. I'm still doing a TV series. I mean, I feel like I'm hopefully going to be relevant. Uh, but then maybe not if this person I respect and admire had a little bit of a, huh, wow. I may, may not be relevant anymore. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, how do, we, how do we tackle relevance or staying relevant, not just to our family and friends, but also people like us who, who have a public profile? Good question. That's a tough one. I mean, I think, I mean, just in a kind of broad meta sense, uh, I think, you know, stay curious, right? I think curiosity is the, that's the elixir of life, right? Just keep moving forward, keep treating life as a process of opening doors instead of closing them, right? Just keep moving forward, keep find things that just get you out of bed in the morning and and that that's one way to keep yourself well and keep yourself you know alive and living and aging well but some of that stuff is going to spark off and be relevant to the bigger culture if you're somebody who wants to be relevant in that public sense i, I think just keep doing new stuff like i mean I, we're both people who do you know speaking so we're on the circuit and i've lost track of the number of people out there who who are just going round and round in circles talking about a book they wrote 25 years ago right and they haven't they're just delivering the same keynote endlessly. And I just, for me, that feels like the kiss of death. You know, it's just Groundhog Day in the worst form. But, you know, there's going to come a time when people are not going to want to hear that 25-year-old book message. And that person's going to end up on some form of scrap heap. So, you know, I, I guess whatever line of work you're in or whatever, however you define relevant, I think the key is always going to be stay curious, right? Stay alert, stay alive. Um, just open doors, see what's behind them. Just keep moving forward. The, the relevant part of that equation has to be me to keep myself from dying of boredom, right? Um, and ennui. So I've got to, you know, reinvent and twist and pivot, right? That word of the moment. So I was thinking uh, here at the end, um, talking about getting older, talking about slow. What city would you uh, like to... Uh... I was going to say die in. That was kind of a weird question. But what, what, like what city? You know, I mean, like, I don't think people like you and me, you and me we retire. I don't anticipate hitting 65 and then stopping. I mean, I, creative people just sort of keep on going, I guess. But, but I mean, what city would you like to sort of spend your, your, your last days? That doesn't sound good either. So yeah. you, but you know what I mean? Like what, what city would you like to be old in? Yeah. Well, I'd like if to live out my final chapter. Maybe let's put it that way. Um, that's a good question. I, I, you know, I'm very partial to London, I must say. I mean, I've, I've lived here a long time now. Uh, I've lived other places. I travel a lot. But this city is, I mean, partly because it's, it's a, it is maybe the global city, right? It, you just feel like, and I grew up, in, as you did, in Western Canada, and I've been a journalist, and I just always feel like in Canada, everything's, everything comes later. You feel like you're far away from things that really matter. It's all kind of secondhand. Whereas in London, I always feel like you're on the bleeding edge of things, ideas, art, literature, media, you just feel like this is where it's happening, right? And I, I love that feeling, you know, I love being here. And, and then to be in a city like that, that at the same time has all of those human qualities we talked about before of being very walkable. I saw just, in fact, yesterday, there was a global survey came out ranking the most walkable cities in the world. 
London's in the top five. I know you probably saw that, right? And I thought, yeah, it totally is. You know, I, I've got a car, but I've almost, I almost never used it, right? The only time I use it is to go play hockey or if I'm driving out to, you know, to go off the holiday in the countryside, right? Otherwise, I'm walking or I'm rollerblading or running or something. And so I just think that this city has got that, you know, it's got the fast and the slow. You can choose when to slow down. You can choose when to speed up. And it also has that deep reservoir of novelty, just newness. And that's the, that is the essence, right? That's the lodestar. That's the cornerstone of a life well lived in my view. And that's, that's where I expect to, I probably will be, I, at 50, I don't think I'm going to be for the next 40 years. I'm going to go live elsewhere now. My kids are grown up. I'm an empty nester as of two weeks ago. So, right. you know, new vistas are opening up of possibilities of where I might live. And I, I, I've been in London a long time. I think I can see myself going somewhere else now. I would, I would have probably gone had COVID not punched me and all of us in the side of the head, right? With a sucker punch. But yeah, I'll go somewhere else. But I, I can imagine coming back to London. And um, I've always said I'm going to Barcelona. I said Amsterdam at the beginning, but Barcelona was the other city I would have put on that list. Barcelona, walkable, well, kind of bikeable, and you know, hopefully it'll get better. But like the beach, you know, I, I just want to live like you know in a warmer city. I think you know, where there's a beach and uh, you know good restaurants and nightlife and you know whatnot. So yeah, something like that for me. Somewhere warmer anyway. Maybe Mexico even. I don't know. Big city, big city. Not a. I don't want to go to any retirement home. I want to. I want to be in a big city, in a neighborhood. I will never, you know, re retire to somewhere like whatever they do in Florida or what they do down in the south of Spain. All the Danes and the Swedes go down to the little colonies down there, you know, and just keep speaking Danish and Swedish and watching Danish and Swedish TV in the south of Spain. Now I'm gonna, I'll be local in a big city, and then uh, I will die happy. <laughs> That's I, I totally on board with that. That's exactly, exactly how I, I can't think of anything worse than being a, a community, right, or something like that, where it's. Um... Yeah, and I'm definitely an urban person. You know, I love the countryside and love spending time in it. And I love the English countryside, green and pleasant land and all that. And who knows, maybe at some point I might, I don't know, if maybe have a place to stay there, but I'm always going to be a city boy, right? You know, I'm always going to be someone who just thrives on that cauldron of human drama, right? <laughs> That's this, this what I've always loved what I've, what's feeds me and it's oh yeah it's going to carry me out <laughs> they're going to carry me out you know they're going to carry me out foot for feet first it's going to be in a city somewhere definitely <laughs> all right we got to plan this man we got to plan our working retirement days uh we got to coordinate you know uh <laughs> i'm in and even long before that let's go let's see each other again in person right somewhere somewhere soon get some wine going and watch the world go by absolutely dude man it's been great to see your face and uh, to talk to you about all this stuff man thanks for taking the time likewise no always a pleasure thank you so much and yeah right. till next time we'll play hockey you'll beat me at hockey but i'll beat you at tennis right yeah okay dude man um i hope to see you soon when we're on the other end of this pandemic and uh and uh take it easy until then take it slow and be old brother stay slow stay bold and i will see you my friend on the other side You've been listening to The Life-Sized City, my podcast about urbanism and urban change. As ever, this episode was produced thanks to red wine and coffee. The music was composed by Phil Creamer. Check out his website at www.hereonout.ca. I'm Michael Koval-Anderson. Thanks for listening.